This is the In Focus podcast from the Hindu. Hello and welcome to part 3 of our series of podcasts on the Israel-Palestine conflict. In the first part of this series, uh, we looked at the origins of this conflict in the 19th century which began actually with the steady influx of Jewish settlers in Palestinian territories culminating in the founding of the state of Israel in 1948. In the second part of this series uh, which is three parts we explored the key developments of the conflict from 1948 to the present the wars that took place in 1948 56 62 82 the first intifada the second intifada the oslo process and all that and and today in this final episode of the three part series we will be exploring the key factors that are driving the current explosion of conflict in the region and its potential fallout over the coming years we are once again joined by stanley johnny the hindus international affairs editor thank you so much once again for joining us stanley thanks ambat so uh, to start with stanley i was just wondering uh, since it's been a while since we last uh, did an episode on the current situation so if you can just give us a quick overview of of the state of the conflict as of today you know the scale of the israeli uh, bombing campaign over gaza the responses from hamas and from hezbollah the hostage situation civilian casualties and so on uh, so since october 7 uh, the day hamas carried out a deadly attack on israel killing 1400 people israel has been relentlessly bombing gaza strip so it is uh, we had discussed this earlier this is a tiny strip of land 365 square kilometers territories which has been sandwiched between israel proper and the mediterranean sea and on the other side on the north on the southern side there is an exit towards egypt uh 2.3 million people are living in gaza and it is practically a defenseless territory because hamas hamas has its on ground soldiers and it rockets but it doesn't have any air defense uh, mechanism at all so israel has been bombing relentlessly at its will at, you know since october 7 uh and which has killed in 20 days of bombing uh 5791 people as per data available since this morning uh and of this 2300 were children unicef has come out with a report about the death of you know the high casualty of children which is usually the case with israeli bombing because israel carries out carpet bombing of gaza uh it has you know it doesn't usually follow the international war uh, laws or humanitarian concerns so 2300 children were killed in 20 days just let that sink in and 1 million people have been displaced already 1 million because israel asked people in northern gaza including in gaza city one of the most densely populated uh townships in the world so israel asked them to move towards the south with the navos and you know that triggered frantic flight of people from the north towards the south and then israel continued attacking the whole of gaza including the south uh so khan yunus which is in the south was targeted by the israeli planes jets uh yesterday and 
uh, you know, uh, at least 700 people were killed in just 24 hours uh, in the past one day of the Israeli bombing. Uh, and the hostage situation remains unresolved. We know that now 200 plus people, 212 uh, people have been taken, had been taken as hostages by Hamas on October 7. Uh, of them, four were released, two Israeli Americans and two elderly Israelis, uh, mainly due to negotiations, uh, you know, organized by Qatar and Egypt. So Hamas released four of them, but over 200 people are still in Hamas's captivity. Israel on, this, uh, on this hostage uh, situation, Stanley, I was just wondering uh, if you wanted to comment on one uh, line of thought, which I just saw in some reports. Uh, there is this line of thinking which says that when we speak of hostages uh, here, we should, uh, shouldn't we also consider whether 2.3 million people are not hostages or no, are they not in a hostage situation in Gaza, you know? Yeah, that is that is a sound argument because this 2.3 million people cannot go anywhere, and Israel has also cut off food, water, uh, supplies, medicines, and electricity, and Gaza is fast running out of fuel, and according to the UN, uh, Gaza's main hospitals, which have been flooded uh, with injured people, Gaza's main hospitals will will run out of fuel very soon on, on Wednesday today. Uh, so, but Israel still says that it won't allow more humanitarian aid to go into Gaza, apart from the 20 trucks that it allowed to move in uh, after the visit of US President Joe Biden. Uh, so, yes, in a sense, the 2.3 million people of Gaza are stuck in this tiny strip of territories, uh, which is also, which is why Gaza is called an open prison. And Israel is now setting fire to this open prison. Right. I mean, there has also been a lot of pushback. I'm sorry to sort of uh, take you up on this. A lot of pushback on this whole comparison of Gaza to a prison because they say that prisons, uh, it cannot be called a prison because prisoners, there is a time limit after which prisoners are released. There is a responsibility on the prisoner. I mean, the, the, the whoever is do, running the prison to give them three meals a day, uh, health care. You know, all those things, which is not uh, uh, something which is available to the people of Gaza. So they say that uh, it's actually a concentration camp and it cannot be called a prison because the prison is at a much higher level of incarceration. Anyway, that's another uh, debate. But please go on. You are going to talk about also the response on the other side from Hamas and Hezbollah. I mean, it's not like they've been quiet. They've also been firing uh, rockets continuously. What has been the effect of that so far? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Hamas has been firing rockets into Israel, uh, which I don't think has caused any major casualties ever since October 7, uh, because Gaza is anyway under heavy bombing. But Hamas keeps firing rockets, short-range rockets into Israel. Uh, and uh, in West Bank, uh, is uh, the situation is highly inflammable at this point of time, because when Israel continues attacking Gaza, there were protests in West Bank which is also Israel is uh, trying to suppress using force. Uh, so more than 100 people were killed in the West Bank alone uh, in the last two weeks, in the last 20, 20 days. So in the West Bank, prior to the October 7 attack by Hamas, uh, some 190 people were killed in the West Bank alone during the violence this year 
2023. And ever since the October 7 attack, more than 100 people were killed. Israel had also bombed a mosque in Jenin uh, and targeted other, uh, uh, other places. And there is also settler violence now uh, because this Jewish settlers had carried out attacks against uh, you know, uh, Arabs in several places in West Bank. So, uh, according to some estimates, some 500 people have been displaced by settler violence and five people were killed by settlers. Five Palestinians were killed by settlers. So, Gaza is under bombardment. Uh, West Bank, which, is, which has been under the Israeli military occupation, the situation is very volatile in the West Bank. And Hezbollah is based in southern Lebanon. So, Hezbollah is not a Palestinian uh, group as we know. It is a Shia, Lebanese Shia group. But Hezbollah had declared its solidarity, ideological solidarity with the Palestinians. And Hezbollah has always defended the Palestinian cause or Palestinians' right to defend. So Al-Minar Television, which is Hezbollah's official TV, uh, reported yesterday that Hassan Nasrallah, the Hezbollah leader, met uh, Hamas's leaders uh, yesterday. Why did they meet? We don't know because Al-Minar usually doesn't reveal the whereabouts of Hassan Nasrallah because he is, uh, you know, on the hit list of the Israelis. Uh, but apparently Hassan Nasrallah met Hamas deputy leader and then, you know, uh, discussed uh, what they can do uh, going forward or uh, reassured Hezbollah's support for Hamas. And Hezbollah had also fired rockets into Sheba Farms. So Sheba Farms is a disputed territory it's a Lebanese territory occupied by the Israelis and Hezbollah wants Israel to vacate Sheba farms. So by firing rockets, Hezbollah was actually declaring solidarity with the Palestinians. But Hezbollah, I don't think there is no, at least as of now, there is no situation of an open conflict between Hezbollah and Israel, at least as of now. But we don't know whether the situation would change once and if Israeli ground invasion begins. Right. Now, uh, speaking of this Israeli uh, ground invasion, uh, Stanley, we were, uh, it was expected that Israel would go in after a few days of aerial bombardment. But the ground invasion uh, seems to have been held back at the last minute and then it has been uh, sort of uh, delayed even more than what was widely anticipated. So is it likely to happen at all or is it, uh, uh, as in, is it been just temporarily pushed back? for whatever reason. What is your sense of the timing or the lack of it of the ground invasion? Yeah, uh, actually, we don't know. There is, uh, I'm also a bit uh, of, uh, you know, uh, a bit in the dark about this because it is surprising, to be frank, uh, that why Israel is taking this much time. Because Israel, immediately after the October 7 attack, Israel started mobilizing reserves. And the reserves were ready. They have been ready to start the war, to go to war. And both Israel's defense minister and the military chief had said that uh, they would launch the war anytime because they asked the troops to be prepared and ready. And then, you know, it's been 20 days, the ground war hasn't begun yet. So there are different theories. One is that, one, of course, one point was that Israel wanted to level the buildings, destroy uh, all the major infrastructure uh, before sending its troops in. And then secondly, the hostage situation makes it difficult because uh, over 200 people are still in Hamas's captivity. So uh, that, you know, makes any ground invasion uncertain because what once the war begins, you have no idea how this is going to turn out and how this is going to affect the hostage situation also. Uh, 
uh, because it's not just Israelis, other nationalities, nationalities are also there among the hostages. And one, another argument is that the Americans asked Israel to pause it because, uh, you know, anticipating uh, that the war could spill over into a regional conflict, the United States needs time to prepare for it. The U.S. has already sent its warships to the region. And apparently, some reports say that the U.S. is also preparing its marines. So in the eventuality of the crisis spilling over uh, into a wider regional conflict, which we have to wait and see, but just in case, the United States should also be prepared. So the U.S. has asked Israel to uh, slow down the ground war. So there are different theories about this. So we don't know what exactly is going on, but I'm actually surprised by the delay. But my sense is that Israel would go for the ground invasion because uh, Netanyahu has set uh, an ambitious target of crushing Hamas. And Israelis keep saying that they wanted to treat Hamas as the Islamic State. And like the Islamic State was crushed by the Americans, the Kurds, the Syrians, or the Russians, uh, or the Iranians. You know, however you look at it, uh, Israel has the right to crush Hamas, to defeat Hamas completely. And Israel is not going to meet that objective only through air operation. Because if tomorrow there is a ceasefire, Israel stops bombing Hamas, and Hamas releases the hostages, Hamas would still very much be there in Gaza preparing for the next attack because definitely this is not going to resolve the Palestinian issue. And as long as the Palestinian issue remains unresolved, Hamas would be there, right? Uh, so if Israel wants to weaken Hamas substantially, destroy its infrastructure and topple, its, uh, topple uh, Hamas uh, from power in Gaza, it needs to carry out a ground invasion. But the ground invasion also comes with risks because... You know, as we discussed earlier, this is one of the most densely populated areas. Israel is doing its best to level the buildings, uh, you know, prepare, preparing itself for the ground war. But still, this is not a ground attack uh, in, in such a densely populated area. Uh, it's not going to be easy. And Israel would be carrying out a ground attack after many, many years. Israel left Gaza in 2005. Israel left Gaza for good in 2005. And uh, in between, there was a brief ground attack, but now it is preparing for a massive ground incursion. And what are you going to do after the ground in attack begins? Are you going to topple, after toppling the Hamas government, are you going to have another government in Gaza? Or are you going to reoccupy Gaza uh, under the Israeli military control? So Israel also doesn't have easy options here. But my sense is still that Israel would go for the ground war. When? We don't know. Right. So Israel will go for the ground war, but we don't know when. Uh, that is also uh, a big question with regard to the general uh, sentiment in many quarters about the need for a ceasefire, at least to put a temporary end to the unending uh, stream of civilian casualties that we've been seeing day after day after day. And we have seen uh, the West has largely vetoed all calls for a ceasefire especially uh, in the UN uh, platform as well. Yeah, in the UN Security Council, Brazil put together a mildly worded resolution and which called for a humanitarian pause, not even a ceasefire. It called for a humanitarian pause to the Israeli bombing of Gaza and the United States just vetoed it. And apparently the only no vote came from the United States. Other Western countries, they abstained. 
whereas Russia and China were for the resolution, and Brazil and countries from the third world, the non-permanent members of the Security Council the glo- from the global south. But the United States just vetoed it. Right. So that's a, that's a little bit uh, strange uh, to say the least of it, because I mean, why, why would anyone uh, oppose a humanitarian pause? I mean, uh, it makes no sense. In any case, coming back to the uh, uh, the earlier topic you were talking about, uh, Stanley, you said uh, that the U.S. has deployed two aircraft carriers to the eastern Mediterranean. Now, uh, you also mentioned that the U.S. needed time to maybe prepare their marines uh, for a possible conflict if it expands uh, from the epicenter, as it were. What do these aircraft carriers bring to the table? Are they, is it like just uh, a way of signaling to certain forces in the region or are they really there to do a job? Are they supposed to be deterring uh, some elements? Uh, I think uh, the main purpose here is deterrence because I don't think Israel needs America's direct support to fight Hamas. Uh, even in the, uh, you know, even if they begin a ground war, Israel Israel thinks that, okay, it needs weapons from the United States and the United States is providing weapons, financial and military support to Israel. But to fight the war against Hamas, I don't think the US needs America's direct support. And also the aircraft carrier, etc., etc. I mean, those were not really needed to fight Hamas. But the United States, by sending the aircraft carrier, you know, by, uh, you know, uh, the president himself traveled to Israel, right? Joe Biden. Uh, Antony Blinken, uh, the state secretary, Tony Blinken was there. And President Biden traveled there a few hours after the Gaza hospital was attacked. Uh, so the United States is doing two things. One, sending a clear signal to the Israelis that we stand by you. You know, whatever you are doing. We uh, Biden said that Israel not just uh, has the right to defend itself, but also has a duty to fight Hamas. And so that is one thing. And then the second point is that it is, you know, uh, here the whole issue is uh, let's say, uh, connected with the larger geopolitical prism here. Because Hamas is backed by Iran. Hezbollah is directly backed by Iran. And Israel is using heavy, disproportionate force targeting the Palestinian people of Gaza, not just Hamas. Uh, so this is creating anger in the Arab world, in the Islamic world. So if Hezbollah responds, we don't know whether Hezbollah will respond, but if Hezbollah responds and if another friend is open in southern Lebanon or Israel's northern border, so if the war widens, you know, and then if Iran uh, gets involved in it in somehow, the United States is sending a clear signal to these powers that we stand by Israel. So don't think that Israel, just because Israel is now stuck with multiple friends doesn't mean that you can attack Israel. So basically, I think the, what the United States is doing is or it sent aircraft carrier or by signaling strong support for Israel, what the United States is doing is sending a message to Israel's conventional rivals in the region that, uh, you know, uh, America stands solidly behind Israel. So it is, I think, a message of deterrence. 
Okay, the, is this message of deterrence really needed? Because uh, we know, I mean, we, nobody talks about it, but we know that Israel is a de facto nuclear power, right? Uh, and uh, that is something uh, which sort of sets it apart from other conventional powers in the region. So, isn't that enough of a deterrence, uh, so to speak? Yeah, Israel is a nuclear power. Israel is a mighty military power. But at the same time, you know, Israel is also facing now multiple crises. So, uh, West Bank, which is under Israel's military occupation, things are getting uh, heated up. Gaza, Israel is attacking, uh, bombing, and is planning to launch a, a ground offensive. And if Lebanon also, if Hezbollah also opened up, the war really widens as regards Israel is concerned. And this Gaza ground attack, is this is not going to be 1967 when Israel took quick victory. The Gaza ground attack would take time. It would take months if Israel wanted to meet its objectives. So the, the, the possibility is that Israel is going to get stuck with prolonged conflicts. So in such a situation, even for a nuclear power, it's not going to be easy to fight a war on multiple fronts. So I think uh, it is uh, the U.S. thinks, I mean, it doesn't mean that Iran would attack Israel or there would be wider regional conflict. That is a different question altogether. But the U.S. is sending a message that we stand by Israel. So don't, uh, you know, uh, think that Israel is, uh, you know, fighting Israel is stuck with different conflicts so that you can exploit the situation. I think this is the message the United States is sending. Right. I mean, a few days after uh, we saw reports of uh, the U.S. deploying two aircraft carriers uh, to the Mediterranean, we there were also reports uh, that China's PLA has deployed six warships to the Middle East in recent days. So how do you view this? Is this part of uh, what is going on right now in the region or is it part of China's evolving strategy towards West Asia, probably driven by a sense that it no longer can be a passive observer? Uh, in this region? No, uh, Chinese deployment could be aimed at securing its supplies because China is heavily dependent on supplies from the region. China is not going to get involved itself militarily in the region. Definitely not. But at the same time, you see Chinese statements, if you look at China's statements over the last 20 days. Initially, China had called for restraint on both sides. And from then, the Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi uh, has attacked Israel uh, uh, a couple of days ago, uh, saying that this kind of uh, uh, you know targeting of civilian population is not acceptable. So China is now taking a very strong position. Initially, they were reluctant to do that because immediately after Hamas's attack, the world has seen Hamas's brutality in Israel. So the whole focus was on Hamas's attack, like the UN Secretary General uh, Antonio Guterres uh, today said, uh, you know. Uh, so he said the attack by Hamas did not happen in a vacuum and the Palestinians have been subjected to 56 years of suffocating occupation. But his point was that their grievances cannot justify the appalling attacks by Hamas and those appalling attacks cannot justify the collective punishment of the Palestinians by the Israelis. So you, you can see this, this, is, this came from the UN Secretary General. Okay, So you can see countries in the global south the non-Western countries articulating this position. They condemn Hamas's attack, uh, you know, without uh, any, any buts and ifs, they condemn Hamas's attack. And then they also say that there is this injustice of decades of suffocating occupation of the Palestinian territories by Israel. That is 
here the objective objective and subjective reality and they also say hamas's attack okay those attacks cannot justify the collective punishment of the palestinians which is what israel is doing now so china is taking that very strong position now at least in the last few days here the problem is that this how this is going to affect you know the internal dynamics of the region because the united states is the traditional great power in the region and we know that the united states priorities have shifted in recent years with the ukraine war and china's rise in in the Indo-Pacific region, etc., etc., but the American president visiting Israel at a time Israel was collectively punishing Gazans in the name of the attacks carried out by Hamas. I think that's sending out a very wrong message to America's allies, even America's allies in the region. So, unlike in the past, when the United States was the only superpower in the region, where America's allies had to actually live with America's decisions. One example was that. the saudi arabia saudi arabs were extremely anxious about the iraq war in 2003 but they had to just go with the american decision right because as as regards the saudis were concerned they knew that if you bring down saddam hussein iran would extend its influence and that is exactly what happened but the americans still went ahead with the war and saudis had to go ahead with the americans there was no option but today's geopolitical situation is different you have russia in syria and you have the chinese Uh, you know, uh, ready to engage uh, these countries. So basically, I think in the the Chinese would try to understand the mood of the region and cash in on because they want to extend their own influence. They may not get directly involved, militarily involved. They won't. But at the same time, I think they will try to uh, you know uh, they will try to cash in on the existing mood or or they will try to engage the countries who are becoming increasingly. uh frustrated with america's policy towards the region right i mean one can imagine that there certainly is an element of cashing in on uh, public sentiment in the arab world i mean we all know china is hardly a champion of uh, human rights and so on uh, but that's another question altogether but coming back to uh, the geopolitical question here stanley now we find that iran saudi arabia the uae I mean, who are all rivals? I mean, they are seem to be on the same side with regard to this particular conflict. Now, uh, is it the case that all the Arab states are under any kind of pressure from the general public sentiment in their countries among the population with regard to this? What is going on right now? Yes, I think uh, I think the Arab street, the mood in the Arab street is overwhelmingly against Israel at this point of time. which was evident you see the protests the protests are happening not only in the arab world it's happening across the world including in western cities you see massive protests uh, against israel's relentless bombing of gaza especially in the arab world you see swelling you know uh, 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 protests are happening and saudi arabia has already said that uh, uh, talks are off uh, for talks for normalization with israel uh, have been pushed have been uh, shelved and uh, you see uh, jordan king jordan uh, king of jordan abdullah the uh, second jordan has a peace agreement with israel so even uh, the jordanian king is now lashing out at israel saying that what is happening is that collective punishment of the people of gaza even queen rania gave an interview to the cnn yesterday talking about uh, the humanitarian situation uh, in gaza uh, abdul fatah al sisi the egyptian president is also uh, talking about it so clearly these leaders are under pressure 
so they all take this, you know, they all at least take a public position about it. But will they do anything more than this? I don't think so. I don't think anybody... So this whole idea of Israel living under threats from the Arab world, which is uh, which doesn't make any sense to me because no Arab country has attacked Israel since 1973, uh, 50 years. So, uh, so these Arab countries, they might issue statements, they might take positions and they will do you know things like Saudi Arabia, I don't think is in a position to go ahead with the normalization talks, at least for now, at least as long as the war continues. They want to. They, they are not in a position to do that. So such talks were shelved. So these are the, the you know this is the situation now. But I don't think uh, Arab countries would do anything more than this. In a sense, I would be surprised even uh, even if there even if there is a breakdown in the diplomatic relationship between Egypt and uh, Israel or UAE and Israel or the Jordanians and the Israelis. Even that is, I mean, I, I'm saying even the even a breakdown of the diplomatic relationship is not going to happen. It's unlikely to happen. Uh, so they might issue statements, that's it. But the problem is that the pressure on the street will go on once the ground invasion begins. That's the. And from the Iran's point of view, Iran has clearly articulated an anti-Israeli position, which it has taken consistently, which has two parts. One is Iran you know, support for the Palestinian cause is one of the foreign policy, uh, you know, goals of Iran. Secondly, Iran sees Israel as its main rival. So Iran wants to continue to support the Palestinian militant factions to keep pressure on Israel. So it helps Iran in both ways. So Iran would continue to take a strong, uh, a stronger position with regard to Israel, whereas the Arab countries would issue statements, continue to raise this issue in international forums. That's it. Right. There is a heavy public sentiment uh, in favor of uh, the Palestinian humanitarian crisis and there is pressure on the Arab leaders, but uh, they are unlikely to do anything more than lip service at the moment. Uh, that's very well articulated. Uh, Stanley, I appreciate that. Now, as you pointed out earlier, I mean, earlier, um, say, till some years ago, US was the uh, supreme power in the region, but now it's a little bit more complicated. And I was wondering uh, about the Russian uh, factor here. We know that Russia has a substantial uh, diaspora of Russian uh, Jews in Israel. And Tel Aviv is one of the very few capitals one can fly to directly from Russia at the moment with the Ukraine war going on. So what has been the nature of Russia's relationship with Israel, given that Israel is also one of the closest allies of the U.S.? and a de facto NATO member. What do you think is driving uh, Russia as a great power, its approach towards this unfolding conflict right now? So Russia and Israel has an uneasy relationship, uh, an uneasy status quo is to relationship, because, uh, see, Netanyahu as a prime minister, I think one of the capitals he visited the most number of times is Moscow. And the Israelis, you know, this... The factor you mentioned, the cultural links, that is there. That is a very important factor between Russia and Israel because of the Jewish connection. And even geopolitically, uh, it is very important because Israel, uh, you know, if Israel wanted to continue to operate freely in Syria, targeting Hezbollah and Iranian shipments, it needs the de facto approval of President Putin because the Russians control 
Syrian airspace. And Putin had allowed that to happen. And in return, if you see Israelis, despite being America's most important ally, the Israelis haven't joined the sanctions against Russia after the Ukraine war. The Israelis also haven't sent any weapons to Ukraine. The Ukrainians, you know, who who immediately after the October 7 attack declared their support for Israel's right to defend. But the Ukrainians got nothing from Israel. They, they have been asking for Iron Dome uh, and the Americans were ready to send Iron Dome, but the Israelis said no, because it is a joint production. The Israelis said no, you cannot send Iron Dome to uh, Ukraine. Uh, so, uh, and, and interestingly, uh, last year in the Israeli foreign ministry, I was talking to a senior diplomat who was in charge of uh, Europe. Uh, so I asked him that why, why uh, Israel has taken such a different position from that of the United States. The United States is your most important ally. Then he said, Russia is now my neighbor because he was actually referring to Syria. So he says, we don't want to complicate our relationship with Russia because Russia can actually complicate our operations in Syria. So it is, it is, it is an uneasy relationship, but they had find some kind of an equilibrium between the two. And when it comes to the Israel-Palestine issue, Russia has traditionally supported the Palestinian cause. And Russia hasn't compromised on that. But at the same time, Russia doesn't want to, for the reasons which, you know, we just discussed, Russia doesn't want to upset its relationship, its equilibrium with the Israelis either. So you look at Russia's statements carefully. Russia said that finding a solution to the Palestinian cause is uh, uh, the uh, you know only lasting solution to this crisis, and they refuse to condemn uh, uh, even even the Hamas attack. They haven't condemned the Hamas attack. So Russia has clearly articulated the pro-Palestine position, but beyond that, they won't do anything. They don't want to upset their existing equation with the Israelis. So that's how the relationship has been structured at this point. Right. Uh, we are running out of time, uh, Stanley. So one final question, a general question I wanted to ask you before we wrap up. I mean, you earlier referenced the UN Secretary General's uh, statement, you know, where he acknowledged that uh, the Hamas attack did not happen in a vacuum. Uh, there, it, there, is a, there is a history of a 56 years suffocating occupation uh, and so on. And, uh, you know, this kind of a 56-year occupation generally is not likely to have gone on for, 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 the, for the amount of time it did without, you know, the concurrence of entire populations. You know, a population-sized consensus is necessary uh, without uh, which it could not go on. And I was just wondering, you know, it also meant that uh, to get that kind of a consensus, you needed to dehumanize uh, the target of such occupation, you know, the Palestinians in this case. So... Is there a certain baseline Islamophobia as an enabling factor in the dehumanization of Palestinians? Do you think that could be a factor as well, especially if you look at the global response for years and years and years? Has there been a baseline Islamophobia at work? Yeah, uh, yeah, I think yeah, it could be because uh, when it comes to uh, responses, the world's responses to this crisis, uh, you can see that there is a clear difference, right? Uh, just look at, I mean, we are, the two conflicts we have now, one is Ukraine and this is Palestine. You look at the global response to this. Uh, so uh, most of the Western countries have taken a, a sympathetic position towards Ukraine and wanted to punish Russia and they have come up with uh, coordinated policy responses. But when it comes to Palestine, 
in, in the case of Palestine, the situation is graver. Everybody would agree that because you have a history of decades of occupation and you have a present of disproportionate bombing targeting uh, mainly civilians and children. Uh, but still, I, I saw your. Uh, I think I, I think you've written uh, on social media somewhere about uh, the number of civilian casualties uh, between uh, in, in Ukraine and in Palestine, and that amount of time it took for each. Yeah, yeah. So if I put it in context, the number of Palestinians killed in twenty days of bombing is five thousand seven hundred and ninety-one, compared to the number of Ukrainian civilians killed in twenty months of. Russian invasion is 9,500. But still you see uh, the world's response. Uh, So one may not be surprised. I mean, this is a question that should be posed to sociologists, but one may not be surprised if Islamophobia actually plays a role. Uh, Because especially when it comes to Israel's response to the Palestinians, you know, Palestinian Arabs are both Christians and uh, Muslims, but predominantly Muslims. And, uh, you know, and Hamas is... Uh, portrayed as an Islamist terrorist organization. And Netanyahu says that this is a battle against Islamism. Not just Netanyahu, you see the right-wingers across the world. They buy this argument, including in India. Uh, you know, uh, but but the actual problem, the actual contradiction here in the case of Israel-Palestine is uh, that of, you know, the contradiction between an occupying force and an occupied people. Uh, this is not being addressed. So basically when it comes to religion. So Netanyahu says that, you know, this is a fight against Islamist Islamist terrorism. And on the other side, Hamas uh, would blame, or Hamas or the Islamists would say this is about Jews, Jewish occupation. But fundamentally, I think the actual problem uh, is that it is the continuing occupation of the state of Israel, continuing occupation by the state of Israel of the Palestinian territories. Right. There is uh, a fundamental contradiction here, as you pointed out, uh, Stanley, and uh, we, I think the wait for a ceasefire really goes on. I think a ceasefire is also needed uh, in the context of establishing a humanitarian corridor and aid uh, to the civilians there. Thank you so much for uh, doing this three-part series with us and explaining the entire conflict from its origins Uh, all the decades in between and all the way to the present. Thank you so much, Stanley. It was an absolute pleasure doing this with you. Thanks, Sambath. Pleasure. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.